hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. Welcome to Rumble Strip. The show is sponsored by Honey Road, my favorite restaurant in Vermont. It's at the corner of Church and Main Streets in downtown Burlington, and they serve amazing Eastern Mediterranean small plates. Make a reservation, maybe for that weird week between Christmas and New Year's, which is like a like time out of time week. I love that week. And it's a great time for a dinner out. Before we start, I also want to thank everyone who has already donated to the Rumble Strip Nest Egg Fund. I'm raising $5,000, so I have money set aside to pay guest producers, to pay my, my musician friend Brian Clark, who makes music for the show, uh, for website maintenance. Also, I fear that I will need a new computer this year, so it will help in that effort as well. If you haven't made a donation, I wonder if you'll consider helping out. There's a green donate button at the top right corner of my website, which is rumblestripvermont.com. Any amount is the perfect amount. I still have about $1,500 to go. Okay, on to the show. Bears are forgiving. They never hold a grudge. You know, humans will hold a grudge forever, especially even if you have miscommunicated. I mean, once you have a rift, it stays and bears, and you have an altercation, and it's over. When it's over, it's over. Always. That's Ben Killam. And this is the sound of bear cubs eating mud up close, recorded on Ben's cell phone. <laughs> no. Ben Killam and his sister Phoebe are the only licensed bear rehabilitators in the state of New Hampshire. For over 25 years, the Killam Bear Center has taken in orphaned or injured black bear cubs and successfully released them back into the wild. And Ben has conducted arguably the longest scientific study of black bear behavior in history. Ben has spent 25 years following black bears in the woods, sometimes for nine hours at a time. As the orphan cubs acclimate to their natural environment, he watches them. He naps when they nap, he moves when they move, and he studies their complex social behaviors. One of his very first cubs, Squirty, is 24 years old this year. She lives in woods near his home, and he's watched her become a mother and now a grandmother, Bear biologists have generally assumed that black bears were solitary animals. Ben Killam has proven them very wrong. In a way, this work was second nature. Ben's father, Lawrence Killam, was a virologist at Dartmouth, but he also studied bird behavior and wrote several books about birds. And he rehabilitated injured animals in their basement. While I was meeting with Ben, he showed me some short videos of black bears he'd recorded on his phone, cubs playing in water, learning to forage and climb trees. And watching these videos, I found myself leaning in like I wanted to climb into his phone. And I wondered why I couldn't get enough of these videos or why I didn't want him to ever stop talking about bears he's observed. And maybe it's because they're like us. We recognize them. When I was leaving, finally, Ben said, you never forget a bear. You see deer, they're interesting, but you don't remember them. Bears you remember every time. Here's Ben Killam. You know, my dad specialized in birds, and he he was pretty practical. 
he believed in a pair of binoculars and a small folding chair. And he and my mother would take turns sitting in front of woodpecker nests, documenting courtship and behavior. But to study a carnivore, you had to come up with a different plan. And my plan was based on my childhood experience. We had lots of orphan animals, from raccoons to beaver to porcupines, and the orphan animals would follow you around. You didn't have to put a collar or a leash on them. And, and so I figured that I could, you know, walk an orphan animal loose in the forest, document its juvenile behavior, and use that to understand adult behavior. Bears came to me accidentally because there wasn't any formal rehabilitation of bears in most of New England. And then Forrest Hammond from Vermont had two cubs. He'd heard about what I wanted to do. Next morning I had a permit in hand and the rest is history. When you had those first two cubs, what was unforgettable or what was... What was, what was unforgettable was the amount of... One, they had a long juvenile period. It couldn't have been a better animal to study. They followed me closely. Uh, I could go anywhere, go nine hours into the woods, come back safely with them, and I could watch them from a foot away. So the amount of observation I was getting was huge. I mean, I could go to a bear tree and watch, you know, everything was exaggerated. Their tongues would come out and stick to the scent and bring it back to a small bump behind their front teeth. I could stick my finger up there and feel the bump, the papilla, the vomeronasal organ. Or if another bear had come and rubbed on it, then, they, then it would spike again. I could watch them. They, they would follow other bears' scent when we came across it, and they'd always follow bears. Like they, one time they came to an apple scat, they followed the bear backwards to the orchard, not forward, because they didn't want to meet the bear. <laughs> but they could tell, you could tell they could tell the declining scent, even though it was invisible. Uh, so, you know, I had a, I had a huge opportunity, and, and it, was, it was just rich with observations. I mean, way beyond what anybody else was seeing. So when I first started writing about it, all the other scientists thought I was nuts. They thought I was from Mars. Why? Because they were they considered them solitary animals. They weren't social at all. They weren't very smart. When you have bears who are attached to you or who will follow you, does that not um, sully the uh, the observation because they're not purely wild? Well, that's the kind of arguments I had against me. But a bear is a bear. Bears want to be bears. They're dependent on me. You know, they, they're very intelligent animals. We get what's known as abandonment cubs. Not every first-time mom can, will have enough milk to raise a cub. So uh, if she runs out of milk, she automatically comes into estrus. The male shows up, she runs off with the male, and the cub's by itself. Most of those die in the woods. Sometimes they make it to a house, and somebody picks them up, and we get them to come here, and they're, they're pretty recognizable by their behavior. The first thing they do, here's a cup that's five or six months old. How big is that, five or six Well, months? it's small because the mother didn't have much milk. But the first thing it does is crawl up my chest, look me in the eyes, and give me a kiss on the lips, putting its tongue between my lips. Take care of me. You want to get disarmed. <laughs> and it should be wilder than a hen hawk. <laughs> the very first time 
when I get it in my hands. Now, if the mother was shot at a chicken coop, they don't like us at all. <laughs> it's already seen the worst side of humans. It takes several weeks for it to start realizing that we're not a danger to it. But you're told, by all accounts, I read everything I could when I got the cubs, uh, that they're solitary animals and this, that, and the other thing. So you're expecting that. Uh, you're expecting uh, that they won't interact with strangers. They might have family relationships. but And then you'll first cubs I have, I take, for, I, when they first came, I would take them for, put them in dog carriers and take them for a ride and take them to someplace interesting and walk them, put them back in the dog carrier and give them a drive home. Well, on one trip out, the female loaded just fine, the male, he weren't getting back in that dog carrier for anything. And he stood up on his hind legs and got mad as hell and roared and lunged at me and I pushed him over with my foot, which calmed him down, and, and then we had a two-mile walk back home through the woods. The female went off, and she you know, did her thing, exploring for you know vegetation, berries, and ants. And He followed me the entire way back, trying to repair our relationship. Why would he do that? Why would he care? Now, you right away, you're going, this, something's going on here. <laughs> And it, it just one thing after another. Get up in the ledges. And, How did that resolve? Hmm? How did that particular disagreement resolve? Well, these first cubs, um, they didn't get to me soon enough. We found that it, the sooner cubs get orphaned, the quicker they need to be here because they need to have family. And those cubs, it was about 14 days because they had to work out you know, whether I could have them or not. These are the first cubs you had. Yeah. yeah. And so... They were desperately trying to make a bond. They were leaving hickeys on Frosty's wife's neck. Frosty was the, the person bear who, who, yeah. the bear biologist who gave you the cubs. Yeah. So they ended up ear-suckling on me as a way of bonding. And so as soon as we got home and sat down and he could ear-suckle and repair, feel that he had repaired the damage, uh, that we had reconciled, he was fine. But the fact that he needed reconciliation was why and then then i'd take him for a hike up in the ledges and the female cub would get, get way out on a ledge and she couldn't didn't know how to get down and the little male cub runs up and gets her and brings her down well that's that's altruism that's rescue altruism where'd that come from these are these are really advanced behaviors and where did they come from and nobody knew at that time that these were bear behaviors no and then, you know, as time went on, you know, moralistic aggression, they all said the unpredictable black bear. Well, I found that they have moralistic aggression. They judge and punish. They, they have expectations of your behavior. And if you exceed those expectations, there's going to be punishment. And they do that with each other. They manage their social hierarchies that way. And because I raised Squirty was the one that I learned most about that from, uh, because I raised her, uh, she treat, there was no intimidation between us. She treated me like a bear. So she expected me to follow her rules. Well, I didn't even know bears had rules. <laughs> you know, because everything I'd read, that was that they're, that they're this solitary animal. They don't have rules. So she taught you bear rules. Hmm. How did that happen? Well, if you break a rule, you get bit. You know, another bear can run. 
and climb a tree and get away on a limb, but humans don't run. <laughs> so you can be it. <laughs> well, it doesn't take many times before you understand the rules and don't break them anymore. And if you, as soon as you understand them and don't break them, you don't have any problem. Can you describe some of the rules that you learned from Squirty? Well, the rules are simple. You know, if she's got really tiny cubs, you know, don't crowd her. Don't, you know, go in and see her all the time. Uh, initially it was okay, but as time went on, it wasn't. And probably the biggest rule is if she's in a social interaction with another bear, uh, I tried to film them and scared the other bear off. They used my footage in A Man Among Bears, National Geographic film. Um, I scared the bear off. She was up in a pine tree and limbs breaking everywhere. And I stepped on a stick as I was trying to get up to the tree to film it. And the bear bailed out of the tree and ran off. Squirty came down out of the tree, followed the bear off, and then came back to me. She made a soft, repetitive moan of appeasement as she approached, which said everything was okay. She stood up on her hind legs, greeted me nose to nose, which is how bears greet each other. And then she pinned her ears and bit me right here, just grabbing a little bit of skin and leaving a nasty wound. And then... She dropped to her feet and reconciled. Followed me around with a soft moan and of reconciliation, saying, I'm terribly sorry, but that was necessary. And that's happened every time that she's punished me. So that very first time, she didn't start teaching you until she was grown? Well, the, she was teaching me all along because cubs... Um, when they're very young, they cry and have good behavior. When they're crying, you got to figure out what's wrong. I've equated it to a first-time mom. You know, she doesn't know how to raise a baby. So the baby, when it's wet, it cries. And when you fix the diaper, it smiles. And it goes, goes through its early childhood. The bears are the same way. Bears get older, uh, and, and something's wrong, something's bothering them. They grab you and bite you. I call it a slow bite or a message bite. And as soon as you figure out what the problem is, there's no more problem. They won't bite you anymore. So is and, it, and I so I say with humans, the human children, when they get older, they use verbal abuse to manage their parents. <laughs> but they're still managing their parents. So do you remember the very first time when she was a teenager? Do you remember the very first time when the roles... I mean, it's not that the roles are reversing, they're developing. Do you remember mm -hmm. the first time she changed? Well, it wasn't a, it wasn't a sudden change because that, 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 the message biting was, was part of it. Um, you know, that you, were, you were breaking their rules at that level. I wasn't recognizing it at that. But I remember I had a, I, I had a friend that... I was, he was an old Yankee and wanted to go out with the Cubs and for a walk because I was talking about walking him. So I brought him out, and of course he was from a generation that a bear belonged in the pot, and those Cubs weren't going anywhere. They came up and grabbed me and bit me, and, and you know, he, we're not going with that guy. And I, I had to say, well, I'm terribly sorry, but this ain't going to happen. And dogs don't do that. Dogs don't manage your personality. That's the reason we have them around the house. You know, people keep saying, well, you know, why don't you have a pet bear? Well, there's several reasons. One, they have three dimensions, X, Y on the ground, and Z, they go up everything. Right. But also, bears think like us. They act like us. And 
they'll manipulate you. You were talking earlier about the moment when you scared the other bear and then she came back and she, it was such a, an incredible lineup of behaviors. Well, it's even more than I told you because when she came to me first with the appeasement moans and came up grief, that's deceptive behavior. She already knew what she was going to do to me. But to get me to stay there, she had to fool me. Into, so she deceived me when she was making the appeasement behavior. Then she punished me, and then she reconciled. And that is repeated every time that there's been a punishment situation. So. How good are you now at recognizing when you're about to be punished? Well, I, I, I'm very good because, you know, once you learn the rules, it's not a problem. The appeasement, the noses. Can you talk about that in, a, or in sort of a more visceral way? So the bear is standing up. Stands up bipedally because that's where you are. Right. And you see pictures on the cover of my book. People say, well, you're kissing a bear. Well, not. They smell your breath. And that's one, one way of IDing you because um, they recognize by the smell of the breath individuals. But... They also greet each other. When bears haven't seen each other for a while, they come nose to nose, and that's the greeting. So that's what... They're uh, getting olfactory cues. We're, we're getting nothing, but uh, it's a normal way of greeting. So Squirty was nose... Touch, touch noses with you? Yeah. And then um, standing, then bit you? Well, she didn't bite me until she, after she greeted, and then all of a sudden her ears pinned and... And it was fast? Yeah. She's never trying to hurt me. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, that's, so it was a very deliberate... Because we, we also have a reciprocal relationship. She's defended me from other bears, her mates, male, big male bears, by lunging into them and telling them to go sit down with a ho 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 And then in the National Geographic film Bear Man, there's I filmed 35-minute encounter with a 400-pound male that she was uh, traveling with. And he didn't let me leave. And every time he blocked me off, she would lunge into him and go, ho, 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 go sit down. And he'd dutifully go back back up and sit down. But she wasn't going to let him mess with me because we had a relationship. So, you know, when you get a bear, you know, that defends you, manages your personality, <laughs> I mean, it's classical conditioning is what she was practicing. And she did, and she does it with her family members. She chases her family members. It's a matrilinear hierarchy, so she'll chase all the bears below her in the hierarchy. She's the boss, and the number two female will chase all the bears below her. The number three female will chase all the bears below her because your position in the hierarchy gives you access to the highest quality home range, the oak tree that has the most nuts on the ground at a time, hierarchy and breeding, all kinds of other benefits but you have to fight for your position, and that's based on personality and, and other things. The, the thing that happens after a punishment, reconciliation, there's an emotional charge to that. Is that the right word to use? Yeah, because, you know, when I describe bears as reciprocal altruists, one of the things that I realized was that squirty, there's unrelated females that she shares her resources with, that helped her out when I first put her in the wild. And Squirty, ever since then, has allowed this, this female until she passed away uh, and all her female relatives access to her surplus resources 
and she shows less aggression towards them than she does her family members. And what was the original event that made them um, close? Well, the original event was when I released Squirty into the wild. She, she and her siblings were seven, 17 months old. And uh, I expected her to mix with wild bears because she was the second set of cubs that I had. And the first set of cubs I caught with wild bears. And so I walked them up to the top of the ridge. They had a remote cage. And they marked all the way up and they marked all the way down. And the next morning I went up and they were on top of the ridge. And I went up and normally I could call them in when I got close enough. And when I went up there, I had a radio signal so I could tell how close I was. And I started calling them and they ran on me. And I said, ah, something's going on here. And I suspected they were with a wild bear. And so the next morning I decided to sneak in on them and get the wind right and they're feeding in a beach stand, and I snuck in, and then I broke a stick, of course, his leaf. And uh, when I uh, broke the stick, my cubs ran and treed up this big red red maple tree and started uh, a nervous moan, which is, mmm, mmm. Your cubs. My your cubs. Three. My cubs. They didn't know what I was. Why? They didn't smell me. The oh, wind was right. Okay. And uh, this wild female came running over and false charged me. And what is a false charge? False charge lunging at me, expelling a big blast of air. But she took on the most dangerous animal in the forest, me, in defense of two cubs that weren't related to her. So essentially she had adopted these cubs. Yeah. And, and then finally my scent gets up to my cubs. Their moan changes to a moan of recognition. They came down and they greeted me nose to nose. They each stood up. And then they pinned their ears and bit me on my forearms, forearms to, to punish me for interfering with their time with this wild female. And then she sat on the bank about 50 feet away watching everything that was taking place. And ever since that time, Squirty has allowed her access not only to the hill that's her home range, but my study area, uh, which I put out food for so I can watch them. And... Uh, she shows less aggression. Squirty shows less aggressions to the unrelated females than she does her family members. And then I, I said, that's a huge parallel to human behavior. Give me an example. How, what, what is the parallel? The parallel is we're much harsher on our family members than we are on strangers. We, we will explode on our family members. And the reason is that we're, our family members are our closest cooperators. And communicating with them is terribly important. And how we communicate is not always pretty. But we can get away with it because we can always reconcile with a family member. But we would never go up to a stranger and rank them out the same way we would a family member. Because strangers are also cooperators. And reconciling with a, st with a stranger is much more difficult than a family member. And that same exact behavior is taking place with the black bears. Just think about how far back in our history uh, a black bear represents a non-human human that would have lived on this earth millions of years ago. You know, all we know about our ancestors is a fossil record. We don't know anything about their behavior. And here we have the opportunity to learn their behavior. You know, we studied uh, the great apes because they were our closest living relatives. A chimpanzee is 90 nine or 98 percent of the same DNA as we have. Well, a mouse is 97. 
So why, you know, why are you saying that bears are more relevant in a way, or more? Why are we? What because are we? none of the great apes are reciprocal altruists. They science has announced announced that there are no non-human animals that share our social behavior. Robert Trivers wrote a paper in 1971 on reciprocal altruism in humans. He listed those psychological conditions I talk about, which are friendship and gratitude and moralistic aggression and a bunch of other ones. And uh, they argue the reason that no non-human animals have it is because without language you can't have a long-term contract. Reciprocal altruism is a exchange of favors with a time delay, a tit for a tat with a time delay. So somebody invites you over for dinner, you feel obligated to invite them back over for dinner. And that's not because you're a nice guy, because that's what you are. That's what humans are. And bears are the same way. So let's say female home ranges are 3 to 15 square miles. They're evenly scattered on the landscape. There's a little overlap with their neighbors. The foods they eat are the highest quality foods in the forest, the nuts, berries, and insects. They're generally available in patches or stands that are unevenly distributed on the landscape, and they're affected by seasonal changes, droughts, frosts, and so forth. So at any given time, one female can have a huge surplus of food in her home range and her neighbor could have nothing. And in Squirty's case, she controls an oak ridge. Oaks have nuts four out of five years. Moose, her neighbor, has controls an area of beech. Beech is every other year. So when there's no beech nuts and only acorns, Squirty lets moose on her property with no aggression. And in years when there's only beech and no acorns, Squirty can go on to mooses. And over time, that social behavior develops. So not only do we have a model of our own social behavior, we have a model of how it might have occurred in the first place. You're a mud bath. You know the sounds that they make. There's a language of sounds that are... Yeah, the mechanically generated sounds and actions, which are the intentional ones. There's chomping of teeth, which is... There's huffing, which is... There's false charging and swatting. There's the guttural sound, which is usually negative. The... And then there's the, the soft appeasement sound is mm, mm, mm. And the, the nervous moan is oh, mm, mm. That's when usually a cub's been, yearling's been chased up a tree by its mom and can't come down. So it'll what, moan. Is the, what does the chomping mean? Chomping is, is usually nervousness. Another bear's under the tree or something like that. And and again, the, it's the context of the situation at the time, so it's never a, a straight, literal impact of it. And the, and the huffing or the blowing? The, that's usually done in retreat, so it's kind of done uh, to let the other bear know that they're fully aware that you're behind them. And sometimes it's done when they're climbing a tree. It, when you're in retreat, you're showing weakness, so you're, you're kind of warning them that they're fully aware that you're behind them. Can you describe the communication in, in general terms, the communication well, that bears use? I, I split it up into emotional communication and intentional communication. And, and intention, they're communicating 
two bears meet on a trail, they have to be able to read each other's intentions. Otherwise, they get injured. And so that's where I believe intentionality came from. So you understand the sort of repertoire between, or the... They, uh, the, they have a limited number of ways of communicating, but the, it's greatly broadened with context. So if you meet a bear and it false charges you, you've got to look at the context of the situation at the time. So let's say you're walking along a path, a well-worn path, a hiking trail. You come across the mama bear with young cubs. She's out having a nice day. You're out having a nice day. And you come along, she thinks you're going to attack her. So she falls, She sends her cubs up a tree and she false charges you. And that means? She's trying to delay confrontation long enough for communication to take place. And you can tell her, you can hold your position, keep maintain your strength by keeping your eyes on her and talk softly. and Let her know that, she, yes, you're strong, but you're not going to hurt her. And she understands appeasement sounds three to five minutes. She's going to determine you're not a threat. She's no longer going to be worried about you. She may circle you. When she does, she wants to know who you are. She wants to be able to smell you and keep track of you after the encounter. But I've run into female bears because I'm interested in them. I had a sow and three cubs cross the road in front of me up in Orford. I didn't know these bears, and I stopped. They were along a swamp where I expected uh, to be a babysitting tree. I followed them in. The cubs were up the babysitting tree. She false charged me. She circled me. And I talked softly to her. And three to five minutes, she could care less about me. I spent two and a half hours filming her afterward. And she just did not pay any attention to me. Can you say what a babysitting tree is? A babysitting tree is a large pine or hemlock near water that the moms use over and over again. They send their cubs up and the cubs sleep and practice climbing and she'll sleep at the base of the tree and radiate out to feed. I think I'd read somewhere in one of these articles about you that there are cues from them that you can come to understand, but that they understand much more about your communication with them. Is that correct? Yeah, they, you know, we have nonverbal communication. 85% of how we communicate with each other every day is nonverbal. But because language is so powerful, most of our nonverbal communication is subconscious. We think the only way we can communicate is by yakking at each other. Bears operate on nonverbal communication, emotional communication. So their you know, facial expressions, intensity of voice, intonation of voice, body language, they read all that just fine. We think they're from Mars. We don't know how they communicate. And that's why I spend the time on it. You know, just because they false charge, it may just mean, you know, I don't know who you are, don't attack me. Or it may mean drop your garbage before you put it in the dumpster because I want something to eat. And, you know, I've, I saw a thing on YouTube once, a bear, there was a bear was feeding on a whale carcass and the tide was coming in. It false charged the tide. <laughs> so a false charge is a... It's an intentional communication based on the context of the situation. But it's run, what, it, what is it actually? It's running at you. It's just a lunge towards you or maybe a short run and then a stop and a big blast of air. could be a swat on the ground. There's little variation. Intensity is based on how the situation is perceived. So it can be from a very simple bow when I'm out with Squirty that she wants me to, you know, I'm using her time if she wants me to leave. 
or it can be a full-blown false charge with swatting in the ground. Does she do that to you still? Yeah. Oh, so when she false charges you, it really is just dismissing you. You can go home now. Yeah. But is there, does it look angry? I mean, you can also... Well, it depends on the intensity of it. I mean, it depends on what I've done wrong. It may be a simple bow. Uh, there's one, some footage I had that Forrest Hammond was looking at with me one day, and I, in the video I said, all right, Squirty, I'm going to go. He said, what'd you see? What'd you see? Her eyes twitched. When Bear's eyes twitched, they're thinking about doing something. The next thing she would have done is false charge. And what does a bow look like? It's just a head bow? Yeah, she just kind of moves towards me, but without any intensity to it. So that's a really, that's a subtle... Yeah, just a subtle hint that it's time to go. How do bears manage the death of a family member? Well, a little boy and little girl. The, the little girl was shot with a rubber bullet that penetrated her. And uh, first she was injured, and while well, the veter veterinary was looking at her, her brother climbed on the outside of the cage and bawled. And when, when she finally died, uh, he was trying to communicate to me that something was wrong, and he did everything he could to act out that there was something wrong. I mean, it was a whole array of unusual behaviors. And finally, when I found her, uh, I picked her up to carry her out, and he stood up on his hind legs and took her from me and set her back down. It was his sister, and he had a strong reaction to her death. And even to the fact when she was wounded, he was well aware of what was going on. There were people that thought all animals used to just kind of collide into their environment and other animals. They, they, didn't, they weren't sentient beings. They didn't have a mind of their own and weren't planning and thinking. And now it's... We're coming a long way, and there's been a lot of advancement in how close animals really, non-human animals really are to ourselves. And, and often it comes down to, but for the voice, as the Italian expression is. I always chuckled when I was, I'd read these, these scientists, and you know, here they were evolutionists in all their theory, right up until the point where the animal got close to humans, and then they suddenly became creationists, that man was put here above and separate from all animals. They, they believe in evolution right up until the point where you start to describe a, an animal's behavior in the same terms as you would a human's behavior. Once you ascribe intelligence or a moral sensibility, that's where they stopped. Yeah. Humans have the advantage of, of not knowing much about anything. And typically speaking, you know, the older a hunter gets, the less he hunts. A lot of that has become, he, gets, he becomes more aware 
of the animal. And the less you know, the easier it is to kill something. That was Ben Killam. I want to pay my respects also to Phoebe Killam and Ben's wife, Debbie Killam, who are critical players in the cub rehabilitation work. For more information on the Killam Bear Center and on Ben's research, visit killambearcenter.org. Ben has been featured in a number of documentaries. He's also actively involved in panda work in China. You can learn more about all of this at his website. Again, it's killembearcenter.org. And if you're feeling the spirit, you can donate to the center. There's a donate button there. Rumble Strip is sponsored by Honey Road, my favorite restaurant in Vermont, serving Eastern Mediterranean small plates at the corner of Church and Main in downtown Burlington. Make a reservation. Eat. And Rumble Strip is also a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of high-quality, independently produced podcasts. Check out the shows at hubspokeaudio.org. One of the shows in the collective is Open Source, hosted by the amazing Christopher Leiden, who I've had a big old brain crush on since before I even started Rumble Strip. He's an amazing interviewer. A show they made recently is about our national origin stories, what they reveal, what they hide or get wrong. It's an amazing conversation with Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times and historians Peter Linebaugh and Philip Deloria. The show is called Origin Stories. Just go to hubspoke.org and click on Open Source and you'll find it. This is Rumble Strip. America Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening. <laughs>